Well, whatever. Why don't you go ahead and turn your Bibles to, to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, while you do that, um, Chris and Janet and um, Brad and Audrey, they all have COVID right now. And uh, they seem to be doing better, but um, they would like prayer and, and that. So, and as you know, Chris Bird is no spring chicken, and, uh, but he says he's, he's doing better. Yeah. But it does kind of linger for a long time, so I can't smell anything, and I have the congestion and stuff, but no more headaches. I just the most annoying thing I think is just being tired. So yeah. So we'll we'll pray for them tonight um, after we introduce our verse. Uh, when I was here last time when we did the first part, it seems like it was forever ago. Uh, but uh, what we talked about in the first six verses uh, is what is called general revelation. If you remember that, uh, general revelation refers to how all of creation. Uh, actively points to its creator. It's, it's revealing knowledge. It's, it's communicating something to us. And the more we look into the universe, the more we look into creation itself, we discover this vast you know, network of, of diverse complexities uh, where things have been designed, things have been set in order, and things have been set in their course and the scriptures tell us that the purpose for that was to declare the glory of God and to demonstrate his handiwork to humanity. Uh, it would only be to humanity because we're the only ones that care. Uh, we're the only ones that would, um, because the way God has created us in, in his image, we're the only ones that can interpret the information. And uh, so, yeah, David says that the message is communicated through creation universally. And then we also mentioned Paul adds to this, he actually expands on the whole idea of general revelation, he, but he does it from a different angle. He says what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, even his eternal power and deity, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Um, see a lot of that these days. And professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of God, the incorruptible God, into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. It's Romans 1, 19 through 23. But he talks about what may be known of God. Uh, that has been revealed. He says it's clearly seen. It's understood by the things that are made, speaking of us. Uh, and then it gets a little bit uh, more specific. So uh, David didn't say all of it. Uh, Paul adds to that. So it, the, the creation goes well beyond proving just the mere existence of God. The, the testimony of creation communicates things about God like his deity, his infinite power, that he's incorruptible. That's a very interesting attribute. Speaking of God's uh, immutability, he's, he's unchanging. Well, that makes him unlike everything in creation because everything uh, that is material is suffering from 
the, the second law of thermodynamics, the law of decay. It's changing. Uh, we're decaying, if you didn't notice. And uh, it's also that God is personal. Uh, Paul says that can be revealed through creation and that he's worthy of glory and thanksgiving and praise. He should be thanked. He should be honored and worshiped because of who he is and his majesty. But as, as Paul is describing here, it is, of course, because of sin, uh, because man is so morally broken and he's bent on rebellion against his creator. Um, the message of creation only serves to leave man without an excuse. And uh, so creation does not provide sufficient knowledge to be saved. Uh, man's conversion, we might say, to God is not possible without the gospel of God. And the only place that the gospel is found is in special revelation. And so in verse 7 uh, in this chapter, David transitions, he leaves behind the discussion of general revelation and creation, and he goes to what we call special revelation, which is found uh, only in the Bible, in the scriptures. So let's read uh, verses 7 through 11, and then we'll pray. David says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we're not left to what we might say is the faith of the deist who believes that uh, you are evident in what they call nature's God. Um, the truths are self-evident uh, based upon what we know about reality. But, Lord, you have not left creation to its own. You've, you've interacted, you've intervened. You've seen our plight, our rebellion, and you've made provision for us through the blood of your Son that we might be saved. So, Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us to our own, but you came to us. And uh, we have some of that sweet testimony here before us in this chapter. And I pray that as we look at these words, that we would be encouraged by David, especially, Lord, to make special revelation what is most special to us. And uh, so encourage us, we pray. And Lord, also we pray for Chris and Janet and Brad and Audrey. Uh, seems like just the next victims of COVID. We thank you that they are improving, and we pray that that would, be, would remain the trajectory that they're on, and that they would recover quickly, and Lord, you would bring them back to us safely and without any enduring effects, Lord. So thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as you notice there, uh, David is just his, all of his focus is just on the Word of God, at least the Word of God that he has available to him. Uh, at this time in history, we're not sure exactly when David wrote Psalm 19. Um, it could have been early in his life, it could have been later. Uh, but the, the most 
um, the, the maximum amount of revelation that he could have had up to this point would have been Genesis and perhaps some of Second Samuel. Okay? But just having that alone uh, was sufficient for David to say these kinds of things about the Word of God. And, uh, and that's pretty amazing. And so here, David uses all of these titles referring to uh, the Word of God that um, he had available to him. And these are the titles. He says, the law, the testimony, the statutes, the commandment, the fear, and the judgments. Now, those are, those are probably not different sections of Scripture, uh, but the Scriptures in general. Now, I guess if you were to if you insisted on narrowing it down to something more specific, uh, I guess possibly you could say, well, this is, David is specifically referring to Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy 34, which is the law of Moses proper. Okay? Because he's definitely referring to the law of Moses. But he doesn't seem to indicate anything maybe from Genesis. And it's maybe from Genesis that he's referring or he's referring to Genesis in verses 1 through 6 when he's talking about general revelation, uh, the creation and all of that. But um, here in the, these other verses, it, it seems specific to the, the statutes, you know, the commandments and things which aren't prevalent in Genesis. And then with each of these titles for Scripture, David describes the Scriptures as perfect, as perfect and uh, the word perfect can mean different things here. Um, it can mean complete, can mean mature, or it can mean unblemished by defect. Now, we know at this time the scriptures are not complete, right? And I think that as we look at the rest of these um, uh, adjectives about the word, he's probably speaking of unblemished by defect, okay? He says that the Bible is sure, that means absolutely faithful and trustworthy. Psalm 18.30 says that the word of the Lord is proven. Psalm 111.7 says the, word, the works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They're trustworthy. The word of God is right, means it is upright. They are pure. Psalm 12.6 says the words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now, if the refiner refines his silver seven times, the sixth and seventh time, probably the fifth, sixth, and seventh are for redundancy. Because by that time, the silver has become so pure um, that there's no dross in it at all. But the Word of God has just, it, it, it is so clean, it is so pure, um, there's no dross in it. There's, there's nothing bad about it. It just fits very nicely with everything else that has been said. And number five, he says it's clean. That's without contaminants. And then I love what he says at the end. He says it's true and righteous altogether. That's, it's true, not in part, but the whole. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them, speaking of the disciples, with your truth, your word is truth. It's truth. Now, those are quite the claims about a written document, aren't they? Those are serious claims. But I, I'm confident that there's no other resource, there's no volume of literature, no work of philosophy, uh, and no religious system worthy of 
such adjectives. I'm not even close. But what is alarming to me that Christians today, I think more and more in their trials, in their marital struggles, or their search for wisdom, turn to just about every other resource available to them before they turn to the Bible. They do, if they ever open its cover. But the Word of God stands alone. But what I find more and more as I work with people, sadly, is that they leave it alone and they fail to be nourished by its content. It's sad. Without the scriptures, you know, we're left to our own wits, which produces nothing short of a moral tragedy, um, the destruction of marriage, family, the death of society, the loss of man's soul. Um, There's a book, a very interesting book. Others have done large volumes of the same work. There's just a a one volume now. It's an easy read. It's called Unimaginable. And what it does is it, it excludes Christ from the first century and it, it kind of postulates what the trajectory of the world was on without Christ and Christianity. You know, like the treatment of women, uh, the slaves within the Roman Empire, uh, government, and you know, the issue of human rights and all that. What would it all look like if Christ did not come and give the gospel to the world? It, it, it's, it's absolutely horrific uh, to think about what the world would be like today if God did not introduce the gospel. But then, then, of course, we have the gospel and we have history recorded for us and we see all that the gospel has done and all that it er- eradicated Uh, throughout history, all that it introduced that was good and wholesome. And, um, but too many people, they just don't understand what the value of the scriptures are. They, we, we should not as a people group, as a race, and I don't not mean white people, uh, I mean the human race, it should not be left to its own. Uh, We have um, history of that where humanity was left to its own and it produced the flood. Uh, It produced uh, fire and brimstone at Sodom and Gomorrah. It produced the judgment of God over Israel, uh, over individuals and nations. Uh, Without the scriptures, without God's input, man is a monstrosity. And I, of course, as we see more of our, not just our culture casting off uh, all that has all that it has been blessed by with the scriptures, but the church now more and more is casting off the scriptures and the results are, are crazy. And I, I, I'm confident that if we're to recover as a culture, the church itself and every individual in it must first return to an understanding that the scriptures are all sufficient and that we must live by its precepts. We must. And just look at uh, as David continues, just these, the practical and necessary things. It's a, David says it converts the soul. The idea is that it turns the soul back from folly, from error, from calamity, verse 7. It makes the simpleton wise. What in our culture, in our education system, can take a simpleton and make him wise? I don't know of anything. Psalm 119, verse, verses 130 The second part of the verse says, the entrance of your word gives understanding to the simple. I have known some people in my life that were not scholars by any means, but they knew the scriptures well, 
And because of the scriptures, they made wise decisions in life. They were successful in business. They, their, their life was just completely blessed by the word of God and their, their obedience to it. David says, the word rejoices the heart. Psalm 119, 100, verse 162 says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Something about the quality of the word. Would, somebody who experiences it would rejoice. He says, the, the scriptures enlighten the eyes. Psalm 119, uh, verse 199 says, now listen to this. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. He doesn't say, I'm smarter than all my teachers. He says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Understanding, wisdom. It means that you, you can, by the scriptures, you can be ready and equipped for life. You know, somebody that reads Genesis chapter 1 and doesn't have any kind of scientific degree is a millennial ahead of a biologist, a cosmologist, any of those people, if they do not believe the scriptures. Okay? They're way ahead, way ahead. The scriptures, he says, they endure forever. Isaiah 46 through 8 says that the grass, the flower, and the flesh of all men fade away, but the word of God stands forever. David said, the word of, by the word of God, your servant is warned. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to your word. He has also says that uh, God rewards those who obey the scriptures. James 1.25 says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Everyone who abides by the scriptures will experience its practical blessing. And then because of these great benefits, verse 10, David says the word should be desired more than much fine gold. Of course, gold being the most valuable of precious metals. And he says, and the scriptures are to be enjoyed more than the sweetest of honey, and honey being the sweetest thing in Israel. Well, Job said that he treasured the word of God more than his necessary food. That's Job 23, 12. So I think that when you read something like that, you should ask the question, how did Job come to that place where he valued the word of God more than his life-sustaining food? What was it about the word that brought Job to that place? And if you're not in that place, what should be done in your life to get to that place? It, it makes sense. You know, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Matthew 4.4. 4. So he's saying, yeah, our physical body, uh, it's sustained temporarily by our physical food, but the, the psyche, the soul of every man that is nourished by the word of God will thrive forever, simply by the word of God. Now what's crazy now in the church, um, and I, it's because of these, these geniuses that we have teaching in our seminaries, the question has arisen, what portions of the Bible are the Word of God? You know, what words in the Bible have actually proceeded from the mouth of God? Now, you could, you could entertain uh, blasphemous questions like that. And, and I do believe they're blasphemy because the, the question to the answer has already been given by Jesus. Yeah. Jesus made it clear on multiple occasions that when the Bible speaks, my Father is speaking. When the Bible speaks, my Father is speaking. He clearly believed that every word in the Bible proceeded from the mouth of God flawlessly and with all authority. 
And so when you have these people doubting this and questioning it, um, I don't know, Judgment Day is going to be a very interesting day for them because in the platform that they have, especially with young people that are wanting to go into ministry, um, they carry that to the churches when they graduate, and, uh, and then they carry that to our young people, and then they carry that the rest of their life. And, uh, and I've met uh, people my age who have been infected uh, with that kind of doctrine. And then in sitting with them, uh, you try to track down the origin of the mess that was made in their life, and it, uh, every major heresy in the church goes back to a seminary. And so it appears that the, uh, the smarter you get, the dumber you are. And um, if anybody knows the truth of God's word, it's the Son of God. Very interesting. Uh, another thing that concerns me in the church right now is the insanity of consulting our culture, cultural norms, for the direction of the church. That's right now is, is insane. Currently, most churches and denominations are establishing their doctrines and, and their philosophies of ministry based upon what is expected by our culture, cultural pressure. Okay? And so rather than bowing to the authority of Scripture, they're kneeling at the altar of what we call cultural relevance. Um, you know, when you're sick and you have nothing to do, you start visiting um, various websites. And so recently I, I've been visiting a number of denominational websites to see how they're, they're justifying various beliefs and practices. And instead of finding a biblical defense for it, I found the cultural doctrines of diversity, of equity, of inclusivity, and most amazingly now is critical race theory. I don't know if you're up on all of that. I'm probably going to have to address it from the pulpit. But I don't think that that surprised me. Um, But I think maybe what did surprise me is that I didn't even find an attempt to justify it from Scripture. That seems to be more new for me, uh, for the denominations that I was looking at. And typically what happens is they diminish or they dilute uh, the, the Scriptures. They at least twist, twist them to a sufficient degree to make all of that stuff at least have the appearance of being biblical. But there's just none of that, which tells me that the church by and large in our culture is abandoning the, the authority of Scripture um, to them, it's just irrelevant. So it's as if all of this progress that we've had um, by the blessings of Scripture, uh, you know, it's crazy that even a non-believer can pick up the Scripture and apply many of its principles and be blessed. You know, C.S. Lewis said, all of God's ways work. They, they function because God is a practical God. Uh, there are a number of supernatural things in there that aren't available to him apart from redemption. But there are many practical things that work. And um, this is crazy. If we continue down this road, it'll essentially be you know, hitting reverse on all the progress that we've had. And um, much of it will go to pot. Moral calamity. It's to be expected, of course. Paul told Timothy, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching. Uh, the word sound there is a Greek word that is, is a medical term, and it, it means um, medicinally. 
you know, doctrine that is medicinal in nature. It's, it's nurturing to the soul. Time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers on YouTube, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables, that is, to lies. 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. Yeah, if you're wondering, YouTube is not actually in the text. It was a bit of a paraphrase. So instead of the scriptures, the culture has become their teacher, and the doctrines that they follow are the lies of the culture, which is a complete departure from the Word of God. And any departure from His Word is a departure from Him, a departure from His promises and His blessings. And I think that what is so disturbing for all of this is that because you know, too many Christians, I believe, from the last couple generations have not been adequately trained in the Scriptures, which means they have not sufficiently experienced their riches And so for their want of a working knowledge of the Bible, they will not likely turn to its pages to navigate um, all of the chaos that's currently going on, uh, trying to figure out what we see in our legal system. Uh, I mean, how many, you know, Paul talks about in the last days, men will be inventors of evil things. They won't be satisfied with the evil that they have, so they'll invent more stuff. And, you know, since the turn of this, this last century, it seems like they have gone to the laboratory just to invent all kinds of moral insanity and things that we, we didn't see on the horizon. Some of it we have, but much of it we just thought, well, that's not even possible. And in fact, if I had brought to your attention in the year 2000 what is unraveling now, you would have told me that I was crazy, that I was a wacko conspiracy theorist. But it's here, and it's come so fast that uh, even good scholars have been scrambling uh, to try to create a roadmap, a way to navigate through this and, and arguments against it. Um, I think that when the book White Fragility came out, um, we had to hurry up and get through that information um, because it doesn't make any sense on the surface, but it has totally infected our culture. It's infected government and business and sports and everything. And if you don't have a working knowledge of the scripture to begin with, uh, the scriptures can be an intimidating place to go for information. And it's crazy. You know, for so many, I think the Bible is like a, a great kitchen that is fully equipped for the preparation of any meal and every dessert. But those in the kitchen have never learned to cook, never learned to bake. And even the furnishings in the kitchen are unknown to them. And so for them, where do they begin? Where do they begin? They have hunger, but no knowledge. Ingredients, but no understanding. They don't know the names of spices or their proper application. Don't cook for me. The stove is even a mystery to them. It's all at their fingertips, only to be overwhelmed by it. Only to be overwhelmed by it. And the Bible is then reduced, I think, to a tool of superstition. Maybe a rabbit's foot. Uh, something untaught Christians living in the culture that is imploding on itself. They have the Bible. Peter would say everything needed for life and godliness, but they know not how to wield it. They just do not. They're lost. They're impotent and overwhelmed. Such people, the author of Hebrews says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again 
the first or the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use, by reason of use, have had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil, Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. And there's an awkward chapter break there. If you turn the page, the author of Hebrews says it's time for believers to uh, not just leave those things behind, but to move on to maturity, that they might be strengthened by the word, they might grow by its nourishment. They might know how to use it as God intended. We need to be like David, who through life's experiences, he proved the word of God as sufficient for all of his needs. And experience is the key word. It was by experience. Of course, he, he studied them. He, he lived in the word. Obviously, when you read the Psalms, he lived in the word. But it was through difficulty, it was through trouble, it was in life that he learned to cry out to God and to take the scriptures literally, seriously, and apply them. And David's experience can no longer be foreign to the believer today, lest we be consumed by the world. I, you know, to have David's drive for the scriptures is, I think, imperative. Like a man that has been deprived of water too long. That's how he would approach the scriptures. Must hunger and thirst for them. All issues of life addressed in it and by it. You know, he understood that the word alone could direct his soul, so he scoured its pages. And think, we have so much more than David did, and people are so content to leave it aside. And David knew that the scriptures lacked nothing in regard to wisdom, so he devoured its content. By no other means would his heart rejoice so heartily, so he happily consumed it. Nothing could so sharpen his understanding of reality so he trusted in them. His knowledge of truth was informed by them. His execution of justice was righteous because of the word. The boundaries of morality, he set them by it. And by heeding them, he was rewarded abundantly. Just all these, you, know, you look at today, um, you look at you know, a bookstore, you look at a library, you look at the internet. There's just so many resources at our fingertips. And every one of them boasts great promises of success. I don't know, is, is America getting better with all of our self-help books and all of its pop psychology? Which among those products can boast of perfection? Absolute trustworthiness, complete, completely correct, having no flaws, uncontaminated by bias and the changing philosophies of men, and which among them are true and righteous in their entirety? I don't know, it sounds like a volume that I should probably research first. And if what it boasts is true, then I need not go anywhere else. Amen? Yeah. Look at, look at verse 12 through 14. David leaves the discussion of these various forms of revelation to present his petition. He says, and I think it's very interesting following all that he has said. He says, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength 
and my Redeemer. In, in verse 12 and 13 of David's petition, he, he recognizes his own depravity and his moral weakness, uh, even his propensity for rebellion. David was a very honest man. So you have this, this great lover of God who hungered desperately for the word of God, saying that he was a champion among sinners. That's the sign of an, of an honest person. He was, I think, as Martin Luther would say, a sinner saint. A sinner saint. He, he belonged to God. He was justified by faith. He was legally righteous in the sight of God through faith, but a, a sinner no less. And it pained him, as it does every sinner saint. Every sinner saint. In verse 12, David confessed that he didn't even understand his own moral failures. You know, Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is desperately wicked. And he says, who can know it? Who can know it? And here David's saying, I don't even understand this thing about me that I despise. I despise myself. Job said, um, I've heard about you with the hearing of the ear, but now I've seen you with my eyes. And that revela- by that revelation, he says, I despise myself. It's kind of like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he says, you know, it was the year that King Uzziah died, and he's in the vision, he says, and I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and, and uh, talking about the, the seraphim and the train of his robe, and, and he said, woe is me, I'm about to die, I'm undone. You know, the revelation of God in, in, in comparison to our sinfulness. But David says, I, this thing about me, I, I, I don't understand it, He just knows that it's so much a part of his moral fabric that he did it instinctively, thoughtlessly, and impulsively, even though he was disgusted by it. You find yourself like that sometimes. Like, why did I say that? (laughs) Uh, why, Why did I think that? Why did I do that? He sounds like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 when Paul said, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I, I don't find it. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that's what I practice, Romans seven, eighteen through 19. So David, like Paul, was very aware of what he was, what he was made of, and it made him desperate for God. So because he is a saint who is aware of his sin, he cries out to God to cleanse him. And in verse 13, the implication is clear. David is unable in his own strength to avoid presumptuous sin. Now, presumptuous sin is the worst kind of sin. Uh, In the law of Moses, there's no atonement for presumptuous sin. Strange, huh? To think that you could commit a sin and then perhaps through ignorance think that you could grab a lamb and take it to the temple with you and by the priest investigating your sin, he would say, I, there's, there's no sacrifice for that. There's nothing. David knew presumptuous sin, didn't he? There's no, there's no sacrifice for adultery. There's no sacrifice for murder. And so David, he had no sacrifice to bring when he committed those things. And what he had to do was cast himself before the mercy of God. But David says, I'm so weak in my my sinful nature, that I, I must have you, I must have your grace, your strength to avoid presumptuous sin. 
He says, without God's help, I would be dominated by the desires of my flesh. I would be dominated. But he does say, if God is the one who keeps me from those passions, he says, I will be blameless. I'll be innocent. And he says, not of minor infractions, but of great transgression. I won't be innocent of the minor things if God is in control of my life, but of great transgressions. I think this is important. Most people are not, a, they're not aware of how sinful they really are or what they're capable of in the flesh. And we've already said it. David was very aware of his grave potential. He, he knew that the moment, one moment away from God's protection and restraint, it could yield a terrible outcome. Second Samuel 11 is sufficient evidence for that. For a moment of pleasure, he committed adultery, which led to murder, and then to the death of his son. And, and the thing is, is David was not a greater sinner than any of us, guilty perhaps of worse sin, but we have the same potential. You get it. And so our problems really begin when we underestimate the potential of our flesh and our need for God's grace. That's where trouble begins. You remember Jesus in John 15, 5 said that without me, you can do nothing, nothing. You know what the word in Greek for nothing means? Nada, <laughs> nothing. And, but because of the sinner, or sorry, because of the saint in the sinner, verse 14, David longed for his words and his thoughts to be acceptable to God. I, I think that David knew, sometimes I think that because you know, they were, you know, David lived a thousand years before Christ, so 3,000 years ago, that you know, he wasn't as sophisticated and as intelligent as we are. Um, that's a really bad mistake, by the way. I'm sure that David knew that if his words and his thoughts were acceptable to God, that then his conduct would follow. It would please God as well. And the best medicine for that is being saturated in God's word. As Paul says, that we need to be renewed uh, in our minds. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Must be renewed. You know, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think more and more, um, as you see that word world within the context that it's used like that one, a, a good translation would be culture, would be culture. Do not be conformed to the current or present culture that you're in, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the only way that's going to happen is if the scriptures become the thing that you love and depend upon. And I would say that if a godly man like David needed the word of God to light his path, we should exercise some of his desperation for it. Yeah, there's no substitute for a working knowledge of God's word. So make it your life source and live from its pages. It will bless you. It will bless your children. It will bless your church, your community. Uh, it will impact countless people. Amen. All right, that's what I got. Psalm 19. Uh, I don't know where I'm going next. My brain can't uh, project that far out. Uh, but it will be from the Word of God. Amen. All right, well, why don't you stand up and we'll pray. If uh, you have any questions about something I've said or whatever, I'd love to speak with you afterwards. Well, Father, the, the, the reality is that 
if all of those ways that David describes the word, if all of that's true, it's something we're going to have to experience personally. But it's not going to happen until, until your word becomes the most necessary thing in our lives. So I pray, Lord, that you would drive us to the word and that we would do all that we can to, to develop a working knowledge of it. So that, as the author of Hebrews said, we might be able to discern both good and evil, that we might know how to navigate in the culture that we're in, that we might know how to confront the issues of life, that we might be able to gain wisdom where it's wanting. So, Lord, make us practitioners of your word. I pray for anybody in this room, Lord, if they lack that hunger and that thirst, I pray that you would dry their throat out. I even pray that they wouldn't be able to sleep, Lord, until they begin to satisfy, until they're being nourished by your word. So just give them that desire, and Lord, fill it with your word, I pray. Lord, thanks for my church family. And I just pray that, Lord, by all these things that we study, and by doing them, that we could be of a benefit to your glory, and Lord, the world around us. So help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Love you guys. Lord bless you.